Finding encouragement in a discouraging world is really what this is all about. And what do you do when God allows Satan to give you a message, allows suffering to come to your life? You know, James says in his first chapter, when little troubles come knocking at your door, do not resist them as enemies. Don't put your foot against the door and say, you can't come into my life. But welcome them as friends. And then he gives all sorts of reasons why we should do that, because character is developed and Christ is seen to be powerful in our lives and all sorts of other reasons. And what do you and I do? Well, what do I do? I can't speak for you, but if little trouble comes knocking at my door, I put my feet against it and say, you can't come into my life. And I resist it. Who is the saint that can welcome suffering as a friend? And yet God can help us to do that. And only God can help us to do that when he allows a messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to be part of our pilgrimage down here on earth. So what do we do when we face these hardships and difficulties that overwhelm us? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us see how we can use what's against us to work for us, for others, and for Christ. And that's how you redeem the suffering. That's how suffering can be a redemptive action in our life, transforming action in our life, in order that Christ might be glorified and that we may be a comfort to others. You know, we're going to be in the book of Corinthians because Corinthians is so much about suffering. I never realized how many passages the Apostle Paul gifts us, leaves as our heritage where this subject of suffering And so much of it is gathered together in his letter he wrote to the church at Corinth. What was this church that he wrote to? Well, the church at Corinth was a fledgling church, although for years it had been established. There were other churches doing a lot better than the church at Corinth that had only just been established. But this was a church, Paul had walked into Corinth, the sin city, of the ancient world and had literally established a fledgling little group. And they had grown numerically, but they had not grown in depth, and that can happen. A church can grow numerically as wide, 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 but an inch deep. And that's what has happened. And when that happens and then trouble comes, then the church can disintegrate under it, There were rumblings about what was happening in Rome and they were throwing Christians to the lions and that the persecutors were coming from the Romans towards Corinth and the church was not prepared for what was ahead for them. They were not prepared because they'd never grown up. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writing to this church says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, aren't you worldly? Aren't you acting more like men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and the other says, I follow Apollos, aren't you not merely men? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servant. Through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted, Apollos watered, but only God gives the increase. Only God gives the increase. Only God gives the increase, folks. So 
Whatever we're doing in ministry for God's name, we can do and do and do till we're blue in the face, but only God brings life and transformation. And what was happening in Corinth, most of the work of God was been doing in the power of the flesh or the self. And so nothing was happening deep. Everything was happening wide. And as a result, it was an infant church. It was a childish church. It needed to grow up. And the Holy Spirit, through Paul, says over and over again, grow up, church. Grow up. 1 Corinthians 13, famous passage. I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love. I'm a sounding gong, just making a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast, etc., etc., etc. And at the end of that famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, you remember what Paul says. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I behaved like a child. I acted like a child. I responded. I, you know, I was just childish. I was an infant. And then I grew up. I became a man. And Corinth, you need to grow up. Is that what the Holy Spirit is saying to every church in the West? I don't know. I'm sure he's still saying it in different ways as it is needed. Paul said it to this group in Corinth. How adult are we? And it's always shown when suffering comes just how big we are. That's the test. How do we respond and react when little troubles come knocking at our door? What do we do with a thorn in the flesh? What do we do when God says, no? to our prayers. How do we know he's saying no? Is it even in our radar? That's the sort of thing I want to talk about. So let's look at what was happening at the church in Corinth. There is all sorts of suffering and trouble. And I think one of the hardest things to bear is relational trouble. One of the hardest things to bear is actually from within the body not from without the body. Sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me. I don't agree with that little nursery rhyme. I find words are the most cutting, crucifying thing. Slander, discrediting your ministry. And that's what was happening to Paul. Over and over again, he uses that word discredit. You are discrediting my ministry. And what had happened in this church was people were wanting to speak. They wanted Paul's pulpit. Well, actually, even he wrote to the church at Philippi, his prize, heart, and joy, and said that some of you couldn't wait till I got thrown in prison so you could preach. Chapter 2. Some of you say, good, now he's there, we can have a go, and we can do it better than him. This is his best church. Well, who's Paul and who's Apollos? And do you know what Paul answers that? Talk about grace. I don't care who's preaching doesn't have to be me, as long as Christ is preached. Yes, that's how he responded to that. And Corinth, they were pushing and shoving, and Paul calls them at one point, you super apostles, sarcastically. There were super apostles. We can do this better. It's a little bit like Moses' story in the Old Testament when they're walking through the wilderness, and God has called Moses and Miriam and Aaron to be leaders. It says that in Ezekiel. I chose Moses and Aaron and Miriam to lead my people, etc., etc., into the promised land. And there comes a point 
where Miriam and Aaron say to each other, hasn't God spoken through us as much as through Moses? Is he the only prophet and leader? Is he the only one that has God's ear? I'm a prophetess and you're the high priest and hasn't God spoken through us? And God dealt drastically with Aaron and Miriam at this point. Well, that was the sort of thing in the New Testament that's going on in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in the letters that Paul writes about it. I'm so glad these letters are here because nothing much has changed. (laughs) Nothing much has changed. I remember when Stuart and I immigrated from America and came to our little church, this brave little group of people who invited Stuart and me, who had never been a pastor, we'd never trained theologically. They took a deep breath and invited us to be their pastor. They were either, as Stuart said, the most stupid people in North America or the most brave to invite us to come. And I remember my husband standing up when we came in 1970 and holding up this book and saying, I promise you I will read, mark, inwardly digest, and teach this book. And I invite you to join me in doing it. Let's have an adventure. And that brave little group of two or so hundred people said, we'll do it. We'll do it. Years later, they did it. But not without a whole lot of one Corinthians (laughs) activity as Elmbrook grew to the size that it is today. And that's what happens when you grow wider if you're not going deeper. That's what you have to watch. And I remember my husband, who was at the top of his career at the age of 26, he was a bank inspector, and he was being interviewed to go to common market in Europe at that age and and move right up to the top of the ladder. And that was the point that he had to make the choice between ministry or business. And I remember him coming here, and we were so enthusiastic, and we wanted to do the very best thing we could. We hadn't a clue what we were doing, but we were willing to do it. And after his third board meeting, he came home and he said, Jill, I have taken more low blows in three months from the church than I took in 20 years of banking in the business world. How can this be? Paul will tell you. Paul will tell you. The low blows. And that is suffering in a sense. It is the criticism, just dealing with criticism. Paul was never through with it. There's a passage in Corinthians in chapter 4 where he says, you know, it's a very small thing that I am judged of you, criticized by you, or of any human court. I don't even judge myself. It is Christ who judges me. And I'm going to stand before him. I'm accountable to him, not you lot. And one day he will come and we will all see the motives of my heart. So I'm going to wait for him to judge me on this that you're judging me on. Now, that's a very interesting passage. If you are being criticized or slandered, get into it. It will give you a lot of help. I return to it again and again because you cannot stand on a platform and become a public speaker and not invite criticism of all shapes and sizes. And if you're a woman, a double dose of it if you are up here. I remember John Stott saying once in England, This pulpit is a very dangerous place for any son of Adam or daughter of Eve for all sorts of reasons. And I asked him about that afterwards. And he said, well, for you, young lady, you have a double dose because half the church will say you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And half the church will. And he, as one of my mentors, what a heritage I have, said, go for it, Jill. God has gifted you. 
and this is what you should do. You have to answer for the gift that God has given you. He was right at the beginning, but if you want to talk about being criticized on your ministry, talk to me. <laughs> talk to me. And it's something you have to handle. I'm handling it today. I have just said yes to a huge opportunity, a very unusual, incredible opportunity to speak at something. And I took that engagement. And for three weeks, I have been on my knees asking myself why. And I have opened myself to God to say, what was my motive? And I'm waiting for his answer. I might have to uninvite myself. I don't know yet. But even today, it's the motivation of the heart that God looks at in church and ministry. And Paul was arguing his credibility, not on the grounds of his gifting, but of his calling, of his calling. And over and over again, that word, you're discrediting me, you super apostles. You are taking away my calling. He's finding himself having to defend himself on every single level. They are criticizing him, for example, coming to preach and expecting to be given an honorarium. Well, actually, he wasn't, as he lays out. He says, I'm the only one that comes through here who isn't using the gospel to make money. I do not accept any payment. I do not charge for preaching the gospel. And they are criticizing him on every single level. Hurts, folks. You suffer with this. What do you do with this? Well, Paul was handling all this turmoil from within the church. On top of it, he is handling hardships. There's a list in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 to 13. Listen to this. In great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in hunger, in dishonor, with the bad reports, with you getting at me as an imposter, dying, beating, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What a passage! Why didn't God protect his prize apostle laying out the theology for the rest of us until time is no more. I mean, why didn't, why didn't he make it easier for him? And on top of all of that, somebody gives him a thorn in the flesh. What is this thorn in the flesh? Very interesting little question. Did God give him this thorn in the flesh, or did Satan? Well, if you read different translations, some say God gave it to him. It was a gift from God, and others say Satan gave it him. And you have to take that challenge on yourself and figure it out. Do some praying and reading on it. But what was it? That might give you a clue. What was this thorn? And he doesn't, for good reasons, Tell us, but there are hints and there are reasons to believe it was a physical pain, an unrelenting pain. It was a weakness that was hindering his work for God, okay? It was a weakness of the flesh, and most people believe it was eye problems. Just as I was getting ready to come to you, I was thinking through this thing driving up here, and I never had this thought before, but I just wondered to myself if, if it had to do with his conversion. 
Because remember when he was on the road to Damascus, what happened? A blinding light blinded him. Do you remember that? It was the glory of God. It was Jesus, of course. And he was literally blind and had to be led by the hand into Damascus, where Ananias appears, very brave man. God says, go and lay your hands on Brother Paul. And he said, well, Brother Paul's just arrived to kill us all, me included. What do you mean, lay my hands? He's come to lay his hands on me. Do you want me to lay my hands on his head or around his neck, Lord? And God said, go, and he's waiting for you. Behold, he prayeth. I love that in the old King James. Behold, he prayeth. Fabulous. All heaven is looking at this persecutor of the church, of this killer of Christians. And he's on his knees. He's on his face. He has been wrong, wrong, wrong. He's met the risen Christ. Can you imagine the heart of Paul? He is fasting. He hasn't eaten since this happened. He is on his face before God. And Ananias comes, and do you remember what he says? Grace, brother, I've come to tell you what great things you must suffer for Christ's sake. That was the message. And God told him, so Paul was expecting it, but even though you know you're going to suffer, that doesn't make it any easier, I found. (laughs) You know, okay, there's lots of troubles ahead of me. God's told me himself, there's a lot of trouble you're going to have for my sake, etc., etc. It doesn't make me look forward to tomorrow anymore than not knowing what troubles you're going to have. He at least knew. And he says, there's a reason for this thorn. That God allowed Satan, I believe it means, to bring sickness. Now remember, we live in a fallen creation that's groaning. The whole creation, as well as the created, is groaning, waiting for our redemption waiting till there's no more tears and no more sickness and no more death. We're waiting. And meanwhile, God allows a fallen creation to die. Sometimes he stops it. He intervenes. Sometimes he reverses, and the miracle happens. But some of God's miracles take time. I was reading Lewis again on the problem of pain this month. And there's this fabulous phrases that stop you reading and just you think, what? Let me think about that. And that was the phrase, miracles take time. Seems to be an oxymoron to me. Because we think of miracles as magic. Miracles aren't magic. Miracles are a reversal of the created order and the creatures disintegrating. And he stops stopping that result of sin and the fall. No less a miracle, says Lewis. I love that. That was a new thought to me, actually. No less a miracle. When we came to Wisconsin, we had a house in the yard was the largest oak tree in Brookfield. Now, we were not aware of that. We were there about three months, and I looked out my kitchen window, and there was a group of people on chairs sitting around our oak tree in our garden. And there was a man standing up giving them a lecture. And I thought, oh, that's what they do in America. You know, they just come and come into your yard and and have a talk about your oak tree. So I walked out to find out who they were. And I sort of tapped somebody on the shoulder and said, who are you? And they said, we are the historical, not hysterical, historical society. 
and we have come to talk about your oak tree. And they continued, and I thought, oh, good. So I just joined them, and I listened, and I found out we had the largest oak tree in Brookfield. And when they'd gone, after I learned a lot about oak trees, I picked up an acorn. And I kept it for all those years as we were raising our teenagers. (laughs) And every so often, I would take my acorn and I would walk outside to my oak tree and I would say, you don't grow an oak tree overnight. No less a miracle. That a little acorn can become an oak tree is a miracle. But you don't grow an oak tree overnight. Miracles, some miracles take time. Some miracles take time. And that helped me as a mother of teenagers. You might want to collect a little acorn on the way home and plant an oak tree. Helps. Encourage you. So some miracles that you ask for take time, and some miracles you ask for never happen. Why? Is it lack of faith? Haven't I prayed hard enough, persistently enough? What do you do with all this pain? What do you do with all this challenge? How do you figure out what the answer is? Yes, no, maybe, wait. Because God always answers prayer. There is no such thing as unanswered prayer, folks. Some people think there is unanswered prayer. It's unanswered prayer is a yes that's waiting, and maybe the miracle is going to take time. That's one thing it may be. But God always answers. He always says yes, no, or maybe. Folks, he says no. He says no. He says no sometimes. This passage of Scripture, he said no. Was Paul mishearing him? Somebody said in the lobby. Maybe it was his lack of faith. I said, doesn't say that. He says, a messenger of Satan was given to me as a gift. And I asked God three times, you take this away, because it's hindering me. It's hindering me. You know, the theory that it was his eye problems, it says in Galatians, the Galatians, he was writing a letter to them, and he said, when I was with you, I... You love me. You receive me. You would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Another place it says, see with what large letters I'm writing this letter. I don't have anyone. I'm in prison. I don't have anyone. Timothy's not here and nobody's writing for me. So I'm writing this to you on my own. Do you see? I'm managing to write with large letters. Another place too that have a reference to his eyes. And so that's why they think it was this eye problem. It was hindering him. He's in prison. He can't see. Maybe he's nearly blind. It's hindering him writing the theology of the Christian church. So why wouldn't God say yes? So Paul asked him, Lord, this is hindering me. This is stopping me. My time's running out. I have so little time, Lord. They're getting me ready to be executed. I'm I'm figuring out my trial as he's sitting in the jail in Philippi. He's, He's writing his defense before Nero, so little time, so much, so much to do. Why wouldn't God say yes? Well, God did say yes in a way, <laughs> but not the way Paul was expecting. And he did say no. 
And when God said no, Paul said yes. He accepted it. He accepted it. Why was it permitted, Paul tells us, to keep me in my place, to keep my head small? He says, I accepted this because I'd had so many visions, so many incredible spiritual experiences that I could have got proud. I could have got my head swelled. And the word he used is super puffed up. I could have been super puffed up. I could have become like the super apostles. I've had a vision. I've, let me tell you, you've had a vision? Listen to mine. I was caught up to the third heaven. I don't know whether I was in the body or I was out of the body, he says at the beginning in that passage that we read. And I saw and heard things that I am not permitted to tell, and I couldn't tell you anyway because there are no human words to explain. And God gave me those visions and dreams to strengthen me for what he promised would happen because I was going to suffer many things for the gospel. And so he gave me this to prepare me. He gave me this to encourage me. When I came out of the vision, I could have got really proud about that. So God gave me the gift of a thorn in the flesh. Why was it permitted to keep him humble? God cannot use a proud person. He will not use a proud person. And we can work our heads off and sing like an angel and write like whoever. And if we're proud, may as well not bother. God says, pride do I hate. Now, we know he hates murder, but he doesn't say murder do I hate. Pride, because pride's where it all began. Pride's where Lucifer fell. Lucifer, son of the morning, became Satan, father of the night, because he was super uplifted. And the greatest servant and creature created by God looked at God sitting on the throne and said, I don't want to be me, I want to be you. I don't want to be the greatest cherubim, seraphim that you've ever created. I want to be God. I want the angels worshiping me, not you. And all hell broke loose in heaven. And that incredible creature, servant of God, became the devil, father of the night. Pride. Super uplifted. Why does God hate it? That's why. He won't have it. There is one bright and shining star, and that's Jesus Christ. You think you're a little star on the Christian scene? I won't have it. And I'll certainly never use you as blessing. I'll certainly never anoint you with power so that you see lives transformed or go to the mission field and bear the things you must bear for me. No way. So what was it? It was, he says, the thorn, a stake for my pride. And the word he uses is cross. There were two sorts of crosses people were crucified on. This sort that Jesus was crucified on. And the stake, and that's the word he uses, sharpened stake that you were impaled on. That was the usual one. That was the one Jesus Christ grew up seeing on his country road of some poor 
mishap that somebody had done in Galilee and the Romans had taken him and impaled him by the side of the road as a promise to the people that they had under their foot. That's what will happen to you. That's the stake. And he says, God gave me a stake for my pride. He asked me to die to the whole thing. And he did it through this physical handicap, hindrance. That's how he did it. Why would, why would God do this? <laughs> Seems so contradictory, doesn't it? Why wouldn't he? Well, apparently, he tells us, in order that his strength would be displayed through my weakness, because people are going to look, in order that the grace I never knew any other way would be manifest in my life. Because God said, my grace, as you've never known it, and could never know it unless you'd said yes to the no, will be made perfect. My glory will be seen. People will say, it has to be God. <laughs> that you are continuing with the thorn in the flesh? You are still taking these missionary treks and getting thrown in jail and beaten up and like, like you were before, you had this physical hand. You mean you, how'd you do that? It has to be God. It was for Christ's sake, he says. Not only for Christ's sake, but for others' sake, for the comfort that he's giving me and the power and the grace and the strength are given to me because of this thorn in the flesh and all the beatings and everything else. In order that, I know how to receive your grace, power, and strength and comfort. In order that, misery leads to ministry, it might outflow of my life to you. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He is the Father of all comfort, of all grace, of all strength. My grace will be sufficient for you. Paul said, so be it. I accept the unacceptable. I accept the no. Yes to the no, Lord. And that's why it was permitted. And what happened in Paul's life was he became stronger instead of weaker spiritually. Weaker bodily, stronger spiritually. Because in the end, God is most interested in the spiritual rather than the physical. I asked myself the question, was Paul ever healed? The answer is yes. Not here. There. The final healing. Paul does not have a thorn in his flesh in heaven. And nor will you and nor will I. Paul doesn't have anybody beating up on him in heaven. Nobody's going to put him in prison in heaven. That miracle took time. Was Paul ever healed? Yes, but not here. Not here. And he's able to say it's a good thorn. It's a good thorn. And then out of the experience he was having, that comfort he'd been given overflowed. Read the book of Philippians. Read his prison epistles. And comforted others. And that's the other reason. Why does God allow here and there a thorn in the flesh? He, in order, not just for you. You don't get comforted for you, just to comfort you. <laughs> Paul says, no. The comfort of God fills your life, overflows, and you go around saying, you know something, tell me your story. And they tell you this horrible story, and, and he's able to say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. You know what God did for me? 
in this horrible situation. He poured his grace and strength into me. And so now, the next time it happens and I'm beaten up or tortured, I look back and I say, I've been there, I've done that. I know what to do with this. I know what to do with this. Stuart and I have met some of the saints of our generation. Nobody will ever hear about them until heaven. People who have birthed an underground church. People who have died horrible deaths and their relatives have told us their story. People who have been poor, in a sense, and could give you the catalog of what they've been through. And one of those people is young woman still in her 30s who two of our missionaries she was standing on our platform with two babies a little toddler and baby in her arms and beautiful young husband missionary kids fourth generation missionary kids all they had to look back on was pioneer missionaries in new tribes and they stood on our platform we all happily got up and sent them out god bless you I remember that day. And I remember the day that the staff were drawn together and they said, terrible thing has happened and guerrillas have come over from Colombia and they have taken three missionaries and we don't know where they are. And the women got out, deep jungle, took four hours to even get to any habitation in a canoe to get out. But the women and the children are safe, but we don't know what's happened to the men. And that began eight years of not knowing. They disappeared in the jungles, taken by the FARC guerrillas. Nobody could find out whether they were dead or alive. Think about this. Think about the three women. Think about the children. And those two were ours. Tanya was ours. And we prayed. We prayed every Sunday. We put their pictures up. Every Sunday, they congregation stood, not just our church. This was worldwide prayer for these three men. In the end, it was Elizabeth Dole who got permission from the government. She was the head of the Red Cross at that point to go and find out, to send soldiers to find out. And they found out, yes, the men were indeed dead. Had been for some time. So here is this beautiful young Jesus lover, glory giver, this young woman now left with these two five- and six-year-olds. So she goes back to the mission. She goes to the school this time and starts to teach the missionary kids, and she stays there for a number of years. And Stuart and I got the chance to go down and do the new tribe's leadership thing. Their headquarters is in Florida, and so we went, and they pull in all their missionaries every five years, And we had a whole 10 days, glorious 10 days, learning, listening, and also encouraging and teaching. And we stayed with this young woman. Tanya is her name. And it was so good to see her and to be with her family, who also her father and mother we support as well. And we hadn't seen each other for a long time. We caught up all these intervening years, et cetera, et cetera. And Tanya said, you know I'm married again. I said, I know you are. Our church rejoiced for you. We stood and praised God, that God would gift you with a husband 
another missionary kid. He's a businessman, a wonderful young man. He said, he's coming, he's coming to supper. And I said, I can't wait to see him. And he came and we had this happy introduction to this young man. And through the meal, she suddenly said, there's something we need you to pray for. And I said, yes, yes, tell us, tell us. We will pray. We'll ask our church to pray. She said, well, my husband's just been diagnosed with cancer. There was a hush, of course. But her parents and the people knew. We didn't. And I can't imagine what my face was like. But she looked at me, and she leaned over and and put her hand on my hand. And she said, Jill, it's all right. I know how to do this. Wow. She does. And the comfort of that hell of eight years flowed into her life. So now she's here, and we don't know the answer. It's not as far as we know terminal. They don't know yet. It's just happened. But the comfort she received, she's going back. She, I know how to do this. I, I know what it's like to try and pray when you can't, when you're speechless, when you are so emotionally in turmoil, you, you can't think and you can't reach and you can't say it right. I know, I know how to do this because that's what I learned. So now I know how to do this. And Paul said, you'll know how to do this. Praise God for that. Because misery leads to ministry. And do you know anyone that needs encouragement? Do you know anyone with a thorn in the flesh? Do you know anyone who's in prison? Do you know anyone who's sick? Do you know anyone who's being criticized and slandered and their reputation torn to shreds? Do you know anyone like that? Of course you do. It's church. Hundreds. Hundreds of us. And Paul said yes to the no. And God not only blessed him with grace and strength and power and turned a lot of that experience into words on paper for you and me all these generations later. And Paul is still encouraging us and saying to us, pray till you find out, folks. Pray persistently. Pray for the answer. Don't tell God you're waiting and persistently praying for the yes. Pray for the answer. How do you do that? Well, can you say, I can't ask God that? A young man said to me, I can't do that. I can't even let it into my mind that the answer may be no. I can't do that. So I said, then you'll never know what the answer is until you're willing to hear the answer. That's where you should start. I am willing to be willing. I mean, start far back as you need to. If you can't say, I'm willing, step back and say, but I'm willing for you to make me willing. Start there. Because the answer may be yes, maybe wait, but it may be no. And until you say yes to the no, if it is no, God can never use you to comfort others. As I was coming to the end of this, I was thinking, and I like to turn my stuff into poems. Let me give you this. She'd been given a problem of personal pain. And she'd prayed he would heal it again and again. He asked her to bear it for God and for good. So she stopped her petitions and said that she would. 
And as soon as she asked for his strengthening grace, he showed her his hands and his side and his face. And the marks in his head were so jagged and deep that she couldn't keep looking and started to weep. So many thorns in the brow of God's son. Yet he only asked me to take and bear one. His grace is sufficient. His strength are enabling. His peace beyond reason he gives us to know. His touch in our spirit, his light in our darkness, his presence he promised, lean hard as you go. My child, he said, gently. Drink deeply of grace. Lean hard on my shoulder and finish your race. So many thorns in the brow of God's son. Yet he only asked me to take and bear one. So she leant. I was strengthened. As promised by him who overcame Satan and trouble and sin. And the knowledge of God she experienced that hour was worth all the tears. The good thorns. As he gave her his power. So many thorns. In the brow of God's son. Yet he only asked me to take and bear one. Pray with me. Just in this quiet moment, I would ask each of you to respond personally to him with so many thorns in his brow. Whatever the Holy Spirit said to you, this is your chance to respond to him. Paul speaking, I will say this, because these experiences I had were so tremendous, God was afraid I might be puffed up by them, so I was given a physical condition which has been a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to hurt and bother me and prick my pride. Three different times I begged God to make me well again. Each time he said, no, but I am with you. That's all you need. My power shows up best in weak people. Now I'm glad to boast about how weak I am. I'm glad to be a living demonstration of Christ's power instead of showing off my own power and abilities. And since I know it's all for Christ's good, I'm quite happy about the thorn. And about insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The less I have, the more I depend on him. Hear us, Lord. For your sake. Amen.